0: The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca
1: Should there be a Christian government? Do we impose Christian values on a pagan society? Is this not what happened in the Netherlands under Kuiper? That's three questions. Uh, Should there be a Christian government? Well, the question is, is Christ the governor of the universe? I mean, every uh, social order, every political order is a theocracy. People think that uh, theocracy is some sort of boogeyman, uh, uh, terrible uh, political device, but every social order is a theocracy. There is always a source of sovereignty or a God. So the question is, is it going to be the true God, the living God, or some other God? The Hindus have their theocracy. The Muslims have their theocracy. The humanists have their theocracy. Uh, There should be a, of course there should be a Christian government. Christ's law and truth and rule should reign. The second question is how we should really get there though do we impose Christian values on a pagan society and the answer to that is no now all law is the uh, legislation of morality you Now, I hear some Christians say you know well you, you know we you can't legislate morality the truth is you can only legislate morality all law is the legislation of morality or it's procedural there too so Somebody's morality is always being legislated. The question is, who should be legislated? Man's or God's? It's actually not rocket science. So, the question of imposition, however, uh, the Christian calling is not to um, establish the kingdom of God by the sword. That's not to say we don't have the right of self-defense and so forth. That's a different question. But the kingdom of God, the law of God, the gospel of God is not spread by the sword. If it were, we could talk about the imposition of Christian truth and values no the Christian movement has always been in history a grassroots movement it's by regeneration through teaching through renewal in the family and in the church and in the community and it steadily people then demand as salt, as the gospel permeates a society and influences all quarters people start to demand righteous laws and righteous government that's how things change and so they've always changed now <clears throat> I say that's how they've changed in terms of the Christian world the uh, Islamic approach, of course, is very different. Uh, in the uh, 7th century, with the rise of Mohammedanism and the, uh, f- the flight to Medina, the Islamic conquests uh, began through North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, and their view was you establish Sharia through force. So, God, of course, Christ, if He wanted to, could, of course, establish His rule at any time. If he wanted to through force. That's not the way he's chosen to do it. And so, Christian, a Christian social order comes about by regeneration and renewal. Now, that doesn't take away the element of force in all law in that once law is established, the essence of law, of course, or at least an important aspect of the rule of law is that the force of authority, of sanction, of punishment is behind it. Otherwise, you can't have a social order. Now, the problem with the idea of imposing a Christian law order is that you can only enforce those laws which most people are already obeying. So, let's say, for example, you, um, you know, this was, a, this was a social order, a society in the microcosm here, and only three of us believed in the laws that were governing our little community. Well, how do you police that? You can't police that. A, a social order collapses when not enough people actually are already enforcing in their own lives the laws of the land. You get anarchy if you don't have people enforcing in their own lives the laws that they think and have put people into power to operate. So, you can't impose, you can't say, right, let's just get a Christian prime minister and he can then organize so that we have Christian laws. That's impossible. It's impossible. And that's why a multi-generational vision has to be recovered in the church. We're not going to turn this thing around next week we have to ask the question, what kind of a future do we want for our children and our grandchildren? And what we do today is a blueprint for tomorrow. So, now I'm not saying God can't revive and transfer. He can. At any time, God can sovereignly revive and awaken a people, and that's quite possible. But we have to have a long-range view and goal that our children's children will be blessed, and that means putting things in place now that will transform our tomorrow. We don't just live for ourselves and in terms of today, but for tomorrow. Is this not what happened in the Netherlands under Kuiper? No. Next question. (laughs) I haven't got time to discuss that, but no. Uh, How does Ephesians 5.25 and 1 Peter 3.7, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the Word, with water through the Word and to present to her himself as a radiant church affect our fellowship with Christ. If I don't feel love for my wife, how does this apply? That is an excellent question. An excellent question. First of all, how we relate to our wives and our children does affect our fellowship with Christ if we're being disobedient to God. The problem with the question is that... the questioner says, if I don't feel love for my wife. Love isn't a feeling. Now, that's how our culture, what our culture says. Now, I'm not saying that love doesn't have attendant feelings with it, but Paul does not say, if you feel like it, obey God. Obey God's law. He says, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, when Jesus says, for example, love your enemies, Well, how do you do that? You may have a difficult relationship with your wife. You may be struggling in your marriage. We all go through times when when there's spotty patches, difficult patches in our
0: marriages, most of us. How do you love your enemies? That's psychologically impossible.
1: If love is a feeling, I can't love my enemies. I don't like my enemies. What I can do, though, is obey God's law with respect to them. I may have an enemy, but I cannot take away their life. I cannot steal their wife. I should not bear false witness against them. I should not covet their goods. I am obligated to the law of God. I am to love not just my friends, but my enemies, because love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, when we start to fulfill God's law with respect to our wives, which means Christ's love for the church was His self-sacrifice, was his giving himself up and making sure here we're told by Peter, of course, the Word of God is central, that we bring the Word of God into the center of our marriages, and live in terms of it. Then the attendant feelings, if we're faithful by the grace of God, will follow. But if we are led by our feelings, well, marriage will break down. And that, of course, we live in a culture where half of marriages break down and where people don't want to get married because they're led by their feelings. It's Not a covenant. It's not a law covenant anymore. It's a feeling thing, and therefore, when the feelings of God, I'm out. When the husband loses, you know, the, the, the lucrative job, the wife who leaves for a better deal, or when our wives don't look as young and attractive as they used to, well, we go else, We We start looking elsewhere. If we live in terms of our feelings, of course our marriages are going to go off. the. We may not feel love for our wives. We have to pray that God would enable us to obey God's Word with respect to them and that He would give us the feelings for our wives. I've been married 15 years now. It doesn't feel the same as when i
0: had been married two years. Does that make sense? Of course it does. (coughs)
1: Is it biblical or unbiblical to yell at your kids
0: (laughs) or raise your voice? Well, I don't think uh, it's
1: sinful to… sometimes we need to raise our voice. I've got three children, they make a right load of noise, and sometimes I can't be heard unless I raise my voice. I think if we've got… the issue is if we are out of control… If we, uh, The Scripture says, fathers, do not exasperate your children uh, to become angry, that if, if we are sort of, you know, um, feel frustrated because we're being interrupted or the ball game is being interrupted and we make a habit of just yelling and barking out commands at our children without leading them, loving them, teaching them, and so forth, your children are going to be able to cope with you raising your voice in times of necessary discipline uh, controlled, not when we're out of control. The Holy Spirit doesn't want us ever to be out of control. In terms of our self-control, if we have to raise our voice, they're going to respect that because they know we love them, we're teaching them, we're serving them. And if we're just yelling and barking out random commands because we're irritable and frustrated, then that is sinful. What would you say to a person, couple, who says that marriage is just a piece of paper who would claim that their commitment exists whether they have an official wedding or not. Well, there is a certain sense in which the one fleshing, the act of sexual union, is uh, not a marriage, but it is certainly aping or copying the essence of marriage. And there is such a thing in law as common law relationships but marriage isn't a piece of paper. We we may register our marriages with the state for uh, tax purposes and so on, but a marriage is before God and the community. You cannot have a marriage without witnesses in the community recognizing the sanctity of that relationship. That's why you have to have signatures of witnesses even on the marriage document. So, people who just say, well, that's just a bit of paper, and, you know, we've got a loving relationship, and it exists between us, etc. Well, uh, there is a certain sense in which people are binding themselves to each other in sexual relationships, but it isn't a marriage, not in the true sense of the term. The marriage is a covenant that is before, in the end, recognized by God and recognized by the society. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to have your marriage recognized by God. If it's witnessed and there are oaths made, it's a marriage, Non-Christians can be married, but if it isn't witnessed, it's not a covenant union. You have to have witnesses to the covenant, the agreement, the oath. That's the importance of marriage in any society. The community recognizes that these two are a married couple. There is a new family unit that has been established. So that's how I would talk about that. Marriage is not just an autonomous thing, because how can you have the breakdown of a marriage if it's just between two people who there's nothing to do with it, it's not contained in a piece of paper? Well, then people can be in and out of relationships as they see fit. The community doesn't in any way hold them accountable. Marriage is not simply a private affair. It's a public affair. Divorce is not just a private affair. It's a public affair. That's why no-fault divorce is criminal. Because right now in this country, really, I can't be married.
0: I could go home tomorrow, walk into the house and say, it's over, I'm gone, see you. And there's no sanctions on me. Marriage is a communal, it's a community act, and it's
1: before God, and it's for the cohesion of the community. You can't just wander in and out of marriage's laissez-faire as though um, the act of a covenantal agreement that is registered and recognized in the community is unimportant. It is important. And actually, the reason in church discipline today why people resent Uh, church discipline and pastoral interference in their marriages is they've got the opinion that marriage is purely private. But there is a public interest, there is a a church interest in my marriage, in your marriage. There's a public interest in the survival of your marriage and the commitment that exists between two people, because who's going to take care of the consequences of your broken marriage? The children. Who's going to pay for that? You see, the state, the welfare state today soaks up the, and you're paying for it, by the way, you're paying for the breakdown of marriage
0: in your taxes. And the state is saying, well, we'll just step in a surrogate father. So there
1: are consequences uh, associated with the establishment and the collapse of a marriage. That means it is a public affair. Marriage was never seen as a private affair. Therefore, it must be witnessed, and that's still required. How accountable are men to raising the raising of their children and being examples To them, and loving their wives,
0: is the raising of our kids spiritually up to our wives? Well, I hope the answer to this is self-evident. We are, uh,
1: men, husbands, as the heads of our home are in spiritual authority, we have the responsibility for the raising of our children. That doesn't mean our wives don't play an important part, we couldn't do without them. But the ultimate accountability for our wife and children lies with us. We cannot simply pass off the instruction of our children, the teaching of our children spiritually to our wives and say, well, you know, you look after the kids, it's your job. Now, I'm not saying that the, the, you know, the image of the modern man who's you know, washing the diapers and you know, changing nappies and getting up in the night and with two bottles and all that kind of stuff that you know, a lot of women expect today, I'm not saying that's the model. I'm saying that in terms of headship and in terms of spiritual responsibility in our homes, we are accountable to God for our wives and our children, and that responsibility in the end Is upon us. We're accountable for it. We're accountable for what goes on in our home, what our children are taught. Anybody who teaches your children is acting on your delegated authority. You think about that. You take a child to any institution, drop them off to be taught. What you're saying to that child is receive their authority as you would receive mine. I delegate their teaching to these people. So any authority that exists outside of what you are doing is authority that you are delegating. In the home, you or your wife together are raising your children, and you carry the ultimate accountability for that biblically. You stated that men need an enlightened understanding. What is your understanding of our 1 versus 2 nature in Christ? Do believers have a sin nature versus flesh? Um, Yes, we have an Adamic nature. So, when we are renewed uh, after knowledge in Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans 7 still, Paul describes his own battle, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. So, of course, in the Christian life, the process of sanctification is our wrestling with the old man. We're putting off and we're putting on, and that's why sanctification is uh, a process And as we are enlightened, Scripture says we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. So, as we grow in our understanding, not just intellectual knowledge, as we grow in wisdom and understanding by the Holy Spirit and we apply it to our lives, our lives are transformed. And that doesn't mean there's not a battle on. Some of you men who are older will have been surprised at times in your senior years to find old battles that you thought you won 25 years ago in your Christian life coming back. And having another go. So we have to put to death that which is earthliness, says Paul. It's mortification of the flesh is an ongoing thing. Not of the creation, mortification of sinful desires. And we replace sinful desire with godly desire. That's the power of a competing affection. We don't just say, Oh, I've got to beat this sin and focus on that. We put something in its place. That's how we defeat sin in our lives. Is homosexuality a lifestyle choice? No. Homosexuality, it's treated as a lifestyle choice today. Lots of people are swinging both ways. Uh, Homosexuality, I may even touch very briefly on this tomorrow on Sunday morning. Today's homosexuality is a revival of paganism it's the denial of distinctions in God's creation. It's actually a, it's an assault on the being of God. It's an assault on His created order. That God has differentiated things, separated things, distinguished things one from the other that cannot be joined. Paganism, oneism, believes that at root everything in the cosmos is one and all distinctions are temporary or illusory. That's why we have a culture that's promoting the idea of sexual androgyny, transvestism, transpersonalism. All these ideas of gender identity are pagan, and they are denying that there is fundamental distinctions in God's creation. God in His own being is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is transcendence, distinction within the being of God. So, there is relationship, but distinction inside of God's own being. In His creation, He distinguishes one thing from another and actually says that men and women have been made in the image and likeness of God, in their differentiation, so that there can then be interpenetration. But in the interpenetration, you don't collapse man and woman into androgyny. We're still male and female, and that's the image of God. So, homosexuality at root is a pagan concept that denies the image of God in man. And the, way it's, the reason that God's law uh, has, forbids homosexuality and has sanctions against homosexuality is because its social consequences are utterly devastating. And Paul says in Romans 1, it is an expression of the burning out of man. It is the... It is a way of throwing in the face of God the very order of His creation. It is to turn God's creation upside down. Homosexuality is an invented word, by the way, by sociologists. Actually, what we should, because when we talk about homosexuality or, or the gay lifestyle, what we're saying is it's their identity. It isn't. It's not a human identity to be a homosexual. The Bible talks about sodomy. Now, we don't. The, the term sounds crude in our time, but that, what, that's what we're talking about, the practice of sodomy. There's no such thing as a homosexual in the sense of somebody who has an identity that is defined by what they do with their genitals. We're creatures made in the image of God, and we either live in, in terms of our sexuality in terms of that image, or we violate it. That's why homosexuality was historically almost always associated with pagan worship.
0: Internet sexual sin. Why? I'm not quite sure that I fully can understand this question with the arrows on it,
1: but um, internet sexual sin, why... Not some say stop. Okay. Um, That's probably got to do with pornography on the internet. Our culture is saturated with the pornographic today, everywhere. Like no other generation of men have had to deal with, especially uh, the younger generation today, the average age of exposure to pornography is about 10 years of age. Hardcore pornography. Pornography essentially is sexual violence. Uh, And it is a... Violation of what God intends for the human relationship. It's voyeuristic. So uh, the idea of pornography is that it somehow will uh, will stimulate um, potency in a person. Actually, the reverse is the case. This is now this is now scientifically proven. This is not just a theological idea. This is a scientifically proven fact that. Addiction to pornography leads to impotence in men. They cannot then perform with a real woman eventually. So kids are getting addicted to porn by 12. Uh, they are, they're using uh, pornography throughout their teenage years. By their early 20s, they're impotent. Because the, um, ag- the aggression, the violence, the graphic character of abortion, the, of, of um, pornography, the continual changing and refreshing of images image after image after image after image which is available now on the internet basically stimulates a, a, the pleasure center in the brain it works like a drug this is now a fact this is a scientific fact it's like similar to addiction to gaming on um, on these uh, game machines now the wii or xbox or whatever is that um These addictions now grow and develop in the same way that heroin works on a person. So there are now actual um, uh, clinical studies that have been done. People are in counseling for addictions to gaming. There are whole groups now of people that are trying to kick pornography because many of the younger generation, that's all they've known. Their idea of sex is pornography, is what has been given to them in pornography. And as with all drugs, you cannot get the same effect from the same amount of drug every time. So the drug use has to become harder and harder and harder and harder core to get the same effect in the pleasure center of the brain. And that's what produces the impotency in the end. So <clears throat> we as men have, have had, having to deal with something that no previous generation has really had to deal with. Even when I was a boy, you still had to go down to the newsagent and say, you know, can I have one of the dirty ones from under the counter, please? You know, and there was a social taboo associated with it. You had to break through numerous barriers To access pornography, which helps you not access pornography, (laughs) but with the internet and with cable TV and all these things now, and with pornography streaming into every aspect of people's lives via their phones and every bit of digital equipment they have, you don't have to break through any social taboos or uh, barriers to access it. And that means the temptation is colossal for people. Uh, for men in particular. Although, as you know from popular novels like uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, female pornography is growing in our culture as well. So, an addiction to pornography in the end is fundamentally sinful, and we need to deal with it. And Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What does that mean? If you can't deal with the internet at your house, turn it off. Get rid of it. Have the internet at work you can't deal with internet access on your phone, get rid of it. People think they need these things. We don't need them. We don't need them. If you can't deal with cable television in your house, get rid of it. So, the thing that may lead you into temptation, get rid of it. You know, if you're obese, you're weighing 300 pounds, and you don't walk past pie shops all day, it's not a good idea. So, if you can't handle the, the, the temptation... Move it out. Get rid of it. Uh, Get blockers put on the internet where only your wife knows the codes and whatever. Find ways of making sure that um, we don't get locked into this particular trap, and it's a trap. You're never satisfied by it. It's always a letdown, and finally, it destroys our ability to enjoy our own sexuality with our own wives. Does Satan have the power to place thoughts into our minds? Yeah, I think he does. I think demonic forces are able to introduce thoughts into our minds, strongholds, ideas. In fact, Paul says explicitly in Scripture that in 2 Corinthians 10, that strongholds are ideas that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, which very clearly means they insert themselves into people's minds. And many of the intellectual currents that have run through our culture over the past 150 years are a direct result, are satanically inspired. They're an aspect of the lie. What is the lie? The lie is that man is God. You will be as gods, defining, knowing for yourselves good and evil. An aspect of that is that man is often inspired demonically in his thinking, and it leads to tyranny, murder, and much of the cesspool that is now running through our culture. Not going to answer that one just because uh, it's about why I came to Canada, and there's probably more pressing questions here. The circumstances were: whoever asked the question was that uh, I felt called to come. I was working with Ravi Zacharias in, um, based in Oxford, and um, he asked me to come to, with my wife to Canada to establish an apologetics ministry here, RZM Canada, which we did, and that's how uh, we originally came to. Canada, and we're very glad to be here. It's our, it's our home. Does the Bible model women being employed outside the home? Is there any possible negative impact on biblical manner with so many spouses working outside the home? Great question. The Bible does have women working outside the home, yes. Um, in fact, I think if you look at the woman of Proverbs 31, uh, She's engaged in all kinds of um, business activity. And historically, actually, in the um, Puritan age, women, very often, husbands would be out at sea as merchants or they'd be at war or whatever, and their wives ran the businesses. So, um, women uh, have been employed uh, in different stages of Christian history outside the home. We see that there in Scripture, in Deborah and Esther, and there's plenty of examples. Um, That Having said that, That does not mean that the priority in a woman's life uh, who is married and has children is not the raising of her children. It is, and it must be. Scripture is clear on that as well. So, any work outside the home has to take second place to the primary responsibility to the nurture of the children. Uh, Now, in some cases... I think pastorally, I would certainly recognize that um, where the incomes are, are low and the family is struggling, sometimes it's necessary for a wife to be working as well, and for certain arrangements with school and nannying or whatever to take place, I don't think that we can have an absolute hard and fast law that no family can ever. All mums must be full-time, stay-at-home mums at all times. I think that's unfair to lay that upon anyone but there are negative implications with so many um, uh, women in the workplace today where careers have been idealized, a number of them off the top of my head. First of all, uh, the, the delay of having children has led to the demographic crisis of our age. Many women are in their careers and then they get to about 39, 40 and they, think, oh, I want a kid. They get there and they can't have one because they've become... Uh, infertile. Um, So, there's one consequence, is that we don't have big families. We don't have enough children. And that's a very significant and serious consequence. Another one is that with the the workforce now saturated with women, men can't find jobs. So, especially as uh, our economies have moved to a service economy, and women are very often suited to Um, Service economy, we've moved away from manufacturing, production, often where men have the major workforce of men has excelled, as our economies have moved more in terms of uh, the service industry, even in the uh, economic world, uh, many men can't find employment, and this does become a significant problem. And it it does create difficulties when a woman uh, in a a marriage has the strong earning power and the husband doesn't. It creates certain tensions in terms of the issue of leadership and headship in the home. It's inescapable. It's unavoidable. So, the Bible does promote what I would call soft patriarchy. No question about it. And that means servant leadership and that the man's priority is protection and provision for his family, and the wife's priority is the the nurture of children, but it is not a blanket uh, condemnation of women working outside the home. Um, In fact, in many respects, women have so many gifts, uh, and ours tend to be a bit less. We excel in certain areas, but women tend to be uh, very often uh, multitaskers in a way that we can't manage, and to deny them a place in the, in the, the functioning of the, so the... The Victorian model of locking the woman away in the house as the pretty China doll is not the biblical model. The P- Protestant Puritan model is the woman of Proverbs 31. And that's what we should be encouraging. Um, but at the same time, we should not be, we should not be uh, turning on its head the biblical model of the nurture of children and that uh, the priority of a wife is the raising of the children. Something on an update of the advance of Islam, well, um, very quickly, uh, Islam is growing in Europe and in North America. They're growing by um, their strong ability to recruit in prisons in particular in North America, where. Disaffected young men are easy prey to the notion of they're largely fatherless men, to the idea of a community of brotherhood in which they can be part of a cause and a purpose. All that appeals to men. As Christianity has abandoned God's law, God's purposes, a vision of God's kingdom in the West, Islam offers young people an alternative. Now, it's a, it's a uh, bastardized version of Christianity. It's a kind of a late Aryan cult Islam. And so, it apes Christianity, copies core elements within Christian doctrine, and passes it off as the real thing. And that's why, as an error, it is powerful. And it, so, it does so. There is a recruitment ground in North America amongst disaffected Uh, youth, especially in prisons. And then they are multiplying in terms of their uh, perspective on the family. They can have up to four wives. They have many, many children. So that uh, demographically, uh, many of the um, Islamists will talk about um, taking Europe without ever firing a bullet, taking North America simply by breeding Americans, North Americans, out of their own country and uh, because of the abortionism of our culture and our reticence to have larger families you don't have to be a genius to see the shape of the future in europe if the church doesn't address themselves to these things to evangelizing the muslim community who are just people who need christ who are captive to a deceptive philosophy and if we do not address ourselves to obedience to you see islam was never a threat in the west since the defeat of the Ottoman Empire. Why wasn't it? Because Christianity was strong. We could, Muslims could come and, and, and live and trade and so forth in Christian lands. It was never a threat because Christianity was established in the law. Now that we are weakened, of course we're vulnerable. So, there is an advance of uh, Islam, and it's a very, very serious and a very very real threat to Christian freedom. You look around the world today Syria, Egypt, Libya, all the places that are in the news Christians being murdered, historic Christian towns being destroyed by uh, this uh, this jihadism that's sweeping the globe, that, in many respects, is, in some uh, people's opinion, the last gasp of. Uh, Islamic radicalism in the Middle East, because actually what you don't get reported in the news is the progress of the Christian gospel in these places. They feel under threat by the spread of the gospel. So they're lashing out against Christians in these places, especially in Africa, North Africa, for example, and West Africa. So it's a complicated scene, but we need to be concerned to reach the Islamic community and also take our responsibility seriously. Then we don't have anything to worry about. Has the public education system crossed the line to the point now where Christian parents should seek an alternative? Absolutely, unequivocally, yes. I think it crossed the line a while back. And because uh, we as Christians living in Canada believed that our education system was Christian, which it was originally, uh, the, even the public system, because of course prior to the establishment of the public system towards the end of the, eight, of the 19th century, which was state-funded, tax paid for, the church ran education and funded education. It was done by families and by the church. While well, certain ideas from Prussia and uh, the what we would call the um, Progressivism coming out from the United States, people like Horace Mann and John Dewey and so forth began to shape perspectives in education that moved away from a Christian classical model of education and began to to, uh, essentially jettison God's Word as central. This began to influence North America uh, and Europe deeply in our educational institutions. And first of all, our universities are captured. And then... Our school system. When the state system was developed here in Canada, Egerton Ryerson, a Christian Methodist minister, a good man, uh, who genuinely wanted to see uh, education, Protestant education spread throughout the country so that it wasn't just controlled by the Anglican church. And um, what was his name? Strong? Strong, Yes. Uh, and what was called the uh, the Compact. So they were trying to uh, expand education beyond the Anglican church. Because most, if you look at the churches, they were built with a schoolhouse. So the idea in one sense was good. The mistake was to make it tax-funded for a start because he who pays the piper calls the tune, at least that's my view. And then uh, they started introducing all these compulsory things so that even children who were ap- apprenticed in various trades were forced to go to these state schools. Anyway, the the curriculum was Christian. And the discussion in Parliament was simply whether the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians should all have their own denominational schools, or whether there should be one Protestant system, because the Catholics had their system, right? The Catholic school system. The decision was made that it would be one, uh, and education is governed provincially, not federally in this country, nationally, the decision was made in Ontario and in the other provinces, as it happens, that um, there would be one Protestant system. But steadily, it was captured by humanism to the point where by the late 60s, pretty much, Christianity had been kicked out of our education system, and it's simply taken about 40 or 50 years for all the consequences of that to work their way down into every aspect of the education system to the point where men who are Establishment figures in education at the University of Toronto, who wrote the Ontario curriculum, are
0: charged with making child pornography. Have you been following the news? Levin?
1: This man, who is responsible for the development of the Ontario curriculum and sexualizing our children, has been charged with making child pornography not simply viewing it as if that were not serious enough,
0: making it. Now, these are the kind of people that are running our education system today. I'm
1: not saying there aren't still good teachers in some schools. There are not, there, I'm not saying there aren't Christians in certain schools. am not saying any of that. I'm saying that the powers that control education, any honest teacher who's been through teacher training college in Ontario will tell you, The curriculum is anti-Christian to the core, and in places like Toronto, we're not even allowed now in the TDSB to remove our children from objectionable classes, and you know why they say, well, it isn't just sex ed, because this queering of culture, they say, is through this program, is
0: through all subjects. Education, teaching, is a Christian mandate.
1: It's given to us in the Great Commission. It's our responsibility. In every, there's no such thing as neutral education. There's no such thing as a neutral topic, a neutral subject. Either all things are created and governed by God and His Word and serve His purposes, or they don't. There's not an atom in the universe which is not created and governed by God. Therefore, all education must, by definition, for the Christian, be Christian. We thought our system was Christian, and it was but it's been taken from us and it's time we realized it. And it isn't going to be enough to get the odd Christian on a school board, as valuable as that may be in slowing decline. What we have to do is what the early church did, what the Protestant church did throughout its history up until a hundred years ago, build Christian schools and educate our children properly with a biblical worldview in the faith in every subject area. Not wrapped up in cotton, cotton wool, sheltered from a nasty world, but trained and equipped to engage at every level non-Christian thinking? And answer it. That's the calling of Christian education. It isn't about hiding our children away. And before somebody says, what about you know, evangelism? Since when is it our children's job to do our job for us? It's not my eight-year-old's responsibility, my six-year-old's responsibility to go into a pagan school and evangelize their humanist teacher. My children are sponges. Their critical faculty isn't opened yet. Children, and the younger ages especially, soak in everything they hear. They're a sponge. They haven't got the ability to critically evaluate what they're hearing. They think, well, this is my teacher. My mum and dad sent me here. This must be right.
0: They just learn it. They take it in. Now, later in life, When the critical faculty
1: starts to open, we're able to educate them in how to reason things through in logic and rhetoric and so forth. That's another issue. But it's not our children's responsibility to go and evangelize the pagans. Our responsibility is to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's my job to evangelize the pagans and the humanists and to raise my children so that when they have come of age, they are able to do the same. Jesus said, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better that a millstone be tied around his neck and he be tossed in the sea. So let us not be the occasion of our children being caused to stumble by giving them a humanistic pagan education and then wondering why they've left the church by the age of 23. Now, I'm not getting at anybody. I'm just stating the facts. These are the statistical facts. You go on the TDSB's website, and you read for yourself what these people believe, what they are teaching our children. Children do not learn history anymore anyway in, the, in these difference of theirs. They learn social studies. History is a department of social studies now. They don't learn geography anymore. They're social studies. Why is that? Because they don't want children having an understanding of the history of Great Britain and of Canada and of the United States and any sense of exceptionalism or national identity or Christendom. They want children to be useful pawns for the modern state. They don't want critical thinkers. Independent thinkers are dangerous to the social order. They say that Canada is a social experiment. That's what they call it. Well, what do you need to do to perform an experiment? What's the prerequisite of an experiment? The prerequisite of performing any successful experiment is a controlled environment. You have to control the variables. If you can't, you cannot do your experiment. Our children are being experimented on. Fourteen genders. That's just that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's ninety per cent of the iceberg underneath in all these subject areas. So that's the long answer to a short question. We should seek an alternative now. Now seek an alternative we're building a Christian school in Toronto right now. We're we're in the middle of renovating our property, planning our curriculum, hiring our principal, because we believe we've got absolutely no alternative but to establish something different. And you know what? The pagans are going to see it, and they're going to say they're getting a better education than our kids at this sink school down the road. We want ours in there. And that's what happened in the early church. It's what happened throughout the history of the church. We were the best educators, Cambridge was a Puritan university. Harvard was started by the Puritans. All the great institutions, these universities, were ours. The university is a medieval institution. It was invented by the church, by Christians, because it means unity and diversity. It means that in all the studies, in all the different spheres of life, the unifying factor is God and His Word. That's the meaning of university. Five minutes, we're almost done. 6.40 6.40 a.m. radio, what day, what time? Tuesday mornings, 5 past 9, John Oakley show, 6.40 a.m. It's called The Culture Wars. Usually I'm on twice a month, and my colleague, Dr. Masson, is on once a month. So feel free to tune
0: in sometime. Matthew 16, 19 talks of binding and loosing, and some
1: would use this as the authority to revise doctrine to the culture how would you respond revised doctrine to the culture well i think matthew sixteen nineteen refers to the the delegated authority in the church um, to bind and loose we are given uh, authority in jesus name to make known the gospel and to make declarations about the truth of the gospel And in a certain sense, not in the full sense of the Roman Catholic Church, but to pronounce judgment and to pronounce absolution. So that when somebody confesses their sins, Scripture says, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I as a pastor can assure somebody who's confessed their sins, their sins are forgiven.
0: They're at the foot of the cross.
1: So there are certain things that we can bind and loose in terms of Christ's authority as in terms of His Word that will bring about significant changes in our lives and therefore in in the culture. I think um, uh, the sort of binding and loosing that tends to have generated a whole school of thought about principalities and powers is more problematic. Uh, The area of our authority, I mean I can't directly engage like the, the Archangel Michael spiritual forces in a dispute over Moses' body, but I have got an authority in Christ in terms of the gospel and in terms of His Word, and I think that's what Matthew 16 is really talking about. I may have not fully understood that question, but is there life on other planets? Well, better check with Star Trek on that one. Um, I don't think so, no, and I think if if, if it were necessary for us to know such, we would have been told. So, even if there were, we don't have that information, so it's irrelevant. God hasn't given us. But uh, I think Scripture is pretty clear that in the creation of the universe, He makes the heavens and the earth. The earth is the very center of God's activity, of His creation. They won't be finding life on other planets now. If the government mandates things that are clearly unbiblical, where is the line between proclaiming truth, advocating, and so on, versus protesting or civil disobedience and breaking law? Well, one of the first things that happens in, a, in such a context is that proclaiming the gospel, the truth, is breaking the law. So uh, I was just in England, as I was mentioning earlier, a week or so ago, where. Um, one of the cases that the Christian concern and a number of lawyers are dealing with there is the arrest of street preachers You're being arrested for preaching in public For reading scripture. This is in England not, not the Soviet Union or China in England Being hauled into prison and being interviewed by police and told they're in violation of various laws for preaching from the Bible So one of the first freedoms that you'll lose In such a context, is the right to freedom of speech, to preach. Our Supreme Court has already said, ruled in favor of the cultural Marxists in terms of banning, uh, denying us our right to condemn certain forms of sexual behavior uh, in a certain context. Now they're saying, you know, in the church, this is still, how long will that last? Certain written material. condemn homosexuality or um, gender confusion? What happens if this bill goes through the Senate, the transgender bill? And if we, even perhaps in church on a Sunday, if a man says, well, I'm a woman, he wants to use the women's washroom in the church. We'll be in violation of the law if we don't let him. Where God's law contravenes man's law, civil disobedience is a Christian duty. It's a Christian duty. When the, pharaohs, when the pharaohs said to the midwives of Egypt, every male that comes out of the womb among the Hebrews, kill them, did they do it? No. And God blessed their civil disobedience. And when the apostles have stood before the council and they say, stop preaching in this name and doing what you're doing, they said, is it right for us to obey God or man? So, our resistance must be that we are obligated to Christ and to the truth. And where we are
0: ordered to disobey God's Word, well, that's when the men are sorted from the boys. That, that sorts the men from the boys right there.
1: Because there, we are obligated to the truth. Now, that means initially passive resistance. It's a longer discussion to talk about the bearing of arms because the American Revolution was based on active resistance to tyranny. The context was, of course, very different. He had essentially a Christian colony and other magistrates and so on. And, uh, but, you know, Cromwell had the king's head taken off, or at least the parliament did. Again, context was slightly different. You had the whole of the parliament, which was essentially Puritan. You had the despotism of the king and so on. But this is our history. So there is a time and a place for uh, resistance that goes beyond passive resistance. Where that is is a wider discussion. So I'm not going to go there right now. But our responsibility is first to God. Two questions left here. Should the church
0: commission unmarried female missionaries with no male headship? Well, why does the church have to do it? Usually because there aren't any men
1: who can be bothered to do it. Now, uh, I think the missionary enterprise to declare the gospel is not, I don't think personally that it's forbidden by Paul. I think that Paul's arguments about the government of the local church are required in terms of God's order, that this is what God wants. That the exercise of authority in the church of elders to preach and teach with authority in the life of the church is given to male elders. I don't think evangelism is given only to men, and to send out women as missionaries is to send out evangelists into the world. Philip's daughters all prophesied in the New Testament, which means to tell forth the Word of God, and uh, I think we need to thank God that there are women who are willing and ready and able to go to the mission field and serve God even if they're unmarried. In fact, often unmarried women make the best missionaries because they're not encumbered with other responsibilities. They're able to give their entire lives to it. And from the very time of the early church, there were entire orders of women, of widows or unmarried women who served as missionaries and uh, sometimes in uh, monasteries, convents or whatever, built hospitals or at least were involved in serving and working in hospitals as missionaries. There's been the history of the church. So we need to release our women to serve God in evangelism and mission in the life of the church. It doesn't mean they're called to govern it. Relay a moment in your life debating when the Lord especially empowered you. Well, that's easy. Uh, a few years ago, um, my colleague Randy and I were We've had several of these experiences, but this one is probably the most uh, significant. Uh, I was doing a debate. We didn't know what to expect or how many, how many people to expect. I was doing a debate at the University of Ontario, in east of Toronto, with the man who was then the Canadian Humanist of the Year, who's presently a professor of philosophy at the University of Toronto, a man named Christopher DiCarlo, and uh, the topic was, Does God Exist? And uh, we arrived at the venue to find, even when we arrived, that a huge gymnasium, a vast gymnasium, was already half full. And uh, by the time the debate was ready to begin, the fire marshal was turning people away because there were already over 3,000 people uh, packed into the gym. And people say, young people aren't interested in uh, you know, God anymore. And um, it was very obvious from the beginning of the debate that um, a lot of prayer, a lot of consideration had gone into the event. There was a group of room full of people praying just above the gymnasium. The man I was debating is particularly, uh, a particularly condescending, bombastic figure who spent most of his time trying to mock and, and goad and so forth within the debate, but it all backfired on him. It was quite remarkable. And uh, there was just a moment in the debate where uh, it was towards the closing, where I and when I close in a debate, I make sure that I declare the gospel very clearly. And there was a definitive moment in the last five or ten minutes where it just went to pin-drop silence in the place. It was like you could have heard a pin drop anywhere in the auditorium, and I had an unrestrained seven or eight minutes to declare the gospel of Christ. And um, I'd already, by the grace of God, very successfully refuted his arguments and made plain the futility of the denial of God, and that was by the grace of God, too. It was just a very uh, unusual night in that respect, and then when I was able to close in such a manner with the gospel, he was silent. He just sat there in silence, he didn't know what to say. And uh, since that time, we've had letters for people who were actually converted that night, That debate. So, God is good. Because His Word cannot return to Him empty. It's impossible for God's Word not to accomplish what He sends it out to do. In closing, let me just uh, ask that um, you consider praying for us as an organization. The kind of things I've been saying here and been doing here. Uh, We do all over the place with a small team, with a very small budget, uh, with a small group of fellows, trying to equip, inspire, encourage the church, Christians everywhere, thinking Christians, to think biblically and apply it to every aspect of life. All these types of questions that you brought up today, we deal with as an organization in a variety of contexts, and uh, what we need as an organization is just... 200 men from across Canada, 200 men from across Canada, and maybe 25 or 30 families at another level to say, we're going to pray for and give to this institute. I'm going to be bold enough to ask you for that. Not, to take, not that you would take it from the giving to your local church. I'm a pastor as well. We only need 50 men from across Canada to give us 50 or 100 bucks a month to forego a, a, a Starbucks. And, you know, during a, a given month, and give us $50 to $100 a month so that we can, this, every time we publish a journal and send it out to people for nothing, it costs us over $10,000 so that we can try and serve the, the Christian community. And we don't do big asks. We don't ask for money. We don't write to people and ask for money. We don't do radio appeals for money. We just want men especially who have been blessed and impacted by the ministry to say, you know what, I've got 100 bucks a month. And there may be some who want to be builders. We have, a, we have some of these cards on the table. Just pick one up and go and talk to your wife and pray about it. To uh, so become an EICC builder. And uh, the Ezra Institute. We call it the Ezra Institute because Ezra Nehemiah, what's Ezra doing? He's built. he's rebuilding. Now, before Nehemiah could rebuild, could have a, a willing crowd of people to rebuild the temple, what did they have to do? Ezra called them back to faithfulness to God's Word. That's that's what we believe our responsibility is as a ministry, to call people back to faithfulness to the Word, to equip them to apply it. Just pray about whether you might be one of those people who could stand with us across Canada to enable this ministry to continue and to to happen. And many of you, I can see, are much wealthier than that. And you could afford to become an EICC builder and give us 3,000 or more a year just to help us accomplish the ministry. Randy Curry is in the blue sweater there, um, or purple is it, I don't know, somewhere in between. Uh, and uh, he's the chairman of the board, he'll gladly talk to you about that, do visit our table. I've really appreciated being with you, appreciate your attentiveness, uh, even after lunch, and uh, it's been a blessing to be with you. Thank you for your excellent questions, and I look forward to seeing some of you uh, tomorrow as we worship God together. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.